Hello and welcome to a very special episode of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, joined with Jason Rabinowitz, as always, and our special guest today is Sven Lidstrom from the Norwegian Polar Institute. He is just returned from Antarctica and is now, I believe, Sven, you're back in Norway? Correct. I'm back in northern Norway in Tromsø. So you've gone from one polar extreme to another, but you've switched latitudes. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome, Sven. This is going to be a special episode, I think. Definitely our first special podcast episode where something terrible or just awful has not happened. So this is very exciting. Exactly, exactly. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in Antarctica. Okay, so my job with the Norwegian Polar Institute is to do operations. And one of the things is to maintain the airfield we have. And it's been there since 2005. And it was built to make it easier for our scientists and staff to get access to the station. Prior to that, we went down by ship. And then we went, started flying and we flew out of Cape Town to our Russian station, Nova Lazarevskaya. And from there, we flew on with a with smaller aircraft. And then the Norwegians saw a big opportunity to build an airfield right at the station. And it would give us the chance to fly via a gateway like Cape Town. But we could fly straight from, from Norway and go down and be on station within like 24 hours. So what exactly is Troll Station? What happens down there? How many people are down there? Uh, what time of year? Give us a little overview of what exactly happens down there in Antarctica. Yeah, good question. So Troll is one of the year-round stations. There are about 40, I believe, that have people year-round. And currently, we're six people wintering at Troll. And they maintain the station. They do some support for different scientific projects. And they prepare the station for the summer. Uh, most of the activity in Antarctica goes on during the summer, but there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. So that's what they're doing now. And then they're also responsible for opening the airfield so we could get in during the summer. The main research is atmospheric research. And we also have a satellite downlink station for Kongspar satellite services. And that's what they're maintaining during the, the winter. And then summer, it's... These days, a lot of research focusing on environmental aspects like glaciology, biology, and things like that. So there are six people spending the Antarctic winter really all by themselves, and they've got a variety of jobs, it sounds like, because they're responsible for maintaining a satellite installation so that they have communications. They've got just the regular housekeeping, I suppose, and then they're also maintaining a 3,000-meter runway. So is there any time to rest for the winter crew? Well, it's during the winter they're supposed to be resting, but no, honestly, it's not. It's pretty full, full on all the time. I just feel that coming back now that you get really tired just after a summer. So I'm very impressed about it with the people that, that winter for us. And, and they do a lot of different things. I mean, we'll hire a plumber. And he was also the one that was uh, doing the traffic control for the flight. And he's <laughs> manager and he's helping out baking, you know, and they're, they're very skilled people that we fortunately can find to work for us. So 
I'd love to know a bit about the physical infrastructure there. What is the runway like? How was the construction done to build such a thing in such an inhospitable place? Take us through the aspects of, of what that runway is like and how it was originally built. Yeah, so it is on blue ice. It's located uh, about 250 kilometers from the coast, 1,250 meters approximately. And it was built by uh, preparing the ice using like a laser cutter to cut down and, or even out the, the glacier ice just to smooth it out. And then uh, that job took about two years to prepare it. And then what we do through the season is just we prepare it by grinding up the ice to get a thin layer of ice chips and snow on top of it. And that's creating the friction on the runway. And if we wanted to, I mean, we could have the runway five kilometers or 10 if we wanted to, but three is enough. It takes quite a lot of work to keeping it up you know, in good conditions through the summer. And it's on, it's on a glacier ice. I mean, it's moving as well. The runway is moving every year. So we're looking at for the next couple of years to start to straighten it out because it's not moving evenly. So that's the thing. If you look at a picture of it now, it actually have a little bend in it. And we have this problem. It's on ice. So, I mean, with the higher temperatures we're seeing, we're struggling to keep it cold <laughs> enough during the summer period. It wasn't an wow, issue. But I, I, a couple of years, you know, when it's above freezing, we can't have aircraft land at it. So we're putting a lot of effort into keeping the ice cold. Wow, that's crazy. And I know some airports, the physical runway doesn't move, but every now and then airports have to renumber the runways as the magnetic poles shift ever so slightly. But in this case, the ice runway is actually shifting, is what you're saying. That's correct. And it's not moving evenly either. It's like a bit of a shift in the way it moves. It's not a straight movement. It's like a twisting force on it. So uh, given the fact that the runway is moving, it sounds like the you sometimes need to to reconfigure the runway but what happens if there's like a just like a hole in the ice how do you repair an ice runway to let an aircraft land on it oh good question yeah so yeah we do get the holes and the cracks and like you could do in normal ice and we have a procedure that's been developed through the years where you you go out and find the cracks you have a mixture of ice chips snow and cold water about a third of each and you go out and it's like cement you just pour it in and then even it out. So that's a job that we do continuously through the summer as the runway moves. So it's, it's kind of like a skating rink. Correct, correct. Very much like a, like a skating rink. Another problem but, we're seeing lately as well is that with the higher temperatures, we have uh, sand blowing off from the mountains. And you know when that ends up on the ice, it starts melting and creating small holes. And it gathers in, in pools of sand that melts into it. So what you would think is sand on a runway is good, but, but not in an Antarctic runway. That's actually a big issue for us to keep it clean, not to get any debris on the runway. That's really interesting because, yeah, you, you would think that the sand would be you know, creating friction, but no, it's just melting the ice and, and that's not very good. No, correct. So how is the runway maintained, not aside from the physical runway, how do you keep the snow off and prepare? Because you mentioned that you're creating kind of a, like a, a snow and, and ice chip mixture on top of the runway to create the friction. How is that done? So we use a tiller, uh, very much what you see in the back of, of uh, the piston bullets or track vehicles that maintain the ski slopes. Very similar, or actually the same in a way, uh, just maybe a bit longer but it just grinds up the runway and it creates these ice chips. And if you let it uh, rest for a day or two, so it, it's like mixing with the ice, 
that's creating the, the very good friction. And to keep the temperature down on the, on the ice, to keep it cold enough, we actually move snow on top of it to insulate the ice so it doesn't melt. The last couple of years, it's been so warm. So even though we're far from the coast, we see melting on the glacier. I mean, we're, we had physical melting, melt pools, like water on the ice. And if we'd had that on the runway, it would be a huge issue. So that's why we like move snow on top of it. And it's on blue ice. So it's not like you see in Antarctica. Otherwise, there's a lot of snow. So it's actually blue ice. It's a blue ice area. So it's one of these areas where there's no snow normally. So how far is the snow from the blue ice and how far are you moving the snow? So now, once we've started building the runway, we get these barriers on the sides. So we get some snow there and it, of course it snows and we try to keep that close to it as much as we can so we can blow it on. Otherwise, we have snow up on the Nunatak, which is a mountain that sticks up to the ice and that's where our station is located. So that's about uh, seven kilometers from the runway. Or if we go further out on the glacier or the ice sheet, maybe 15, 20 kilometers, you start seeing more and more snow. So let's shift to the actual operation of the airfield. What happens maybe a week before you're going to receive an aircraft? Okay, yeah. So uh, we start preparing the runway. So in this season, we, we started removing snow that we put on top of the ice to keep it cold during the, the summer. So we start blowing that away. Actually, we use the same machines used in an airport anywhere in the world. We have issues with snow. It's the same type. We use the same type to blow the snow on top of that runway to keep it cold. And then once we have a flight, we remove it. And we start with that about uh, two weeks prior to the flight. One week prior, we start grinding it or going over with these piston bullets with, uh, or Everest that we use with a tiller on the back that just creates this ice chips on top of it. And then we let it sit for uh, two to three days before the flight. And if there are any repairs that we need to do, this I mentioned or you mentioned that we get is holes, we need to do that. We stopped doing that about two weeks prior to the flight. So it's enough time for it to, to freeze and we can check that the repair is good enough. And then about five days prior to the flight, our weather forecasters that we use, that is actually, uh, they're German, normally based at the German station. They start doing the weather forecast for the flight. And for the last flight we had, they came up with a very narrow weather window. So we actually moved the flight forward 24 hours to get in before a big storm. So at the moment, they're going through a quite big storm down there. And when we're talking storms, I mean, we recorded a 98 meters per second winds. So that's like three times a hurricane. So wow. it's you can't, yeah, can't really in. fly a plane in that. No, no. you can't. And, and you, you don't have many places exactly to divert to around there if you miss the window. No, correct. Uh, we're actually lucky because we do, during the summer season, we would have a, an alternate, but we never like plan for it. But we do have an option if that's the case. That was a good thing with the plane we used on this flight. They could actually go down and, and circle for a while and go back. And we try to go for those type of planes. And for reference, this time around, it was an Iceland Air 767-300. And I believe last time it was a 757-200 that Iceland Air used, not a 300. I'm not sure what they used last time. They did not fly for us last time they flew down. They flew for a, another com or a tourist company. I believe it was six years ago. Our, early this season, we used Global Express and we've used 737s. We've also used a 757 
it just depends on how many people and how much cargo we're bringing in or out on station and how our schedule looks. And this year was very special due to COVID that restricted us in how we could set up the operations. So Iceland being more or less green with uh, nearly no cases of COVID made it a lot easier for us to take the plane from there. And then being able to fly from Troll straight home to Oslo was a big benefit for us as well. So the airfield is ready. You've got your your layer of ice chips and snow that are going to provide friction on the blue ice runway. The weather is clear. The aircraft is inbound from Cape Town. What is everyone doing to get ready for the flight to land? Okay, so uh, yeah, so then our, our chef and science team and so on, they actually go in, we have a fire truck. Or for this flight, they required us to have two. So we rebuilt a uh, a track vehicle, a Hagelund's track vehicle, so we had two fire trucks. And they go out and are one hour prior to the flight, they're at the airfield. We have an ambulance, also a Hagelund's vehicle, and the doctor went out in that. This time around, it was the electrician who was the, the airfield tower, and he goes out about an hour or two hours prior to the flight and checks the runway, checks everything is in order. Last year, we actually had a a couple of birds fighting on the runway. So right before the flight, we had <laughs> dead birds. Uh, it's just like up. any other airport. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then we start bringing the passengers out this year because they wanted to see the flight. They were out there about uh, half an hour prior to the flight. Then the aircraft comes in, lands. There's a lot of people taking photos, uh, of course, or filming or, or, you know, it's a big thing. And then it's like any other airport. Only that it's we don't have that many flights to, to practice for. So it's a big thing for everyone to get involved in this. So. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned that there are firefighting trucks there for, for the arrival of this aircraft. What are these fire trucks doing the rest of the time? Because they looked like pretty standard airport firefighting trucks that you would see at any other airport. Is this just generally used there or are these special pieces of equipment just for the sporadic flights that actually do come in? It was brought in for the sporadic flights, but we use it on station as well. So we have we have some roads, so they, they do fire prevention and fire protection on station, but mainly it's for our flight operations. And it's a very standard fire truck. Our training we do in Svalbard, and we do it on a very similar type of truck. So they get very familiar with operating the same truck that we used on a troll. I find that particularly interesting that although these are such exceptional circumstances, such an odd thing to have a passenger aircraft land somewhere as exotic as a troll research station on Blue Ice Runway, there's still normal aspects. Like there's a normal aircraft firefighting truck and there's some sort of air traffic control tower. I guess what I'm interested in also is what is in that air traffic control tower, if you could call it a tower, I guess. Do they have radar? Are they just talking to the aircraft via radio? How do they know that the aircraft is coming or where it is? Okay, uh, good question. You would be a bit disappointed. So uh, the, the tower <laughs> the airfield, it's, it's a regular Toyota, and we, we have this urban VHF in that, and they can connect to a weather station out of the airfield. Most of the flight following is done from station. That's from our ordinary ops room, so where we do all, all our operations down there. There's no radar. Uh, we do tracking. We have an ADSB installation for connected to flight radar, so we track the flights all around. We have satellite phones, VHF, HF, 
remote controlled cameras and so on, but it's not very similar to what you would expect in a normal tower. And that also puts a lot of pressure on the pilots flying in. We don't we have a GPS approach if needed to, but we we don't allow planes to come in when the weather is bad. We always look for good weather windows for our flight operations. So the aircraft comes in and you're doing the normal stuff. So cargo loading and and passengers are loading and things like that. The two questions that we've gotten the most on social media have been about fuel and how that works. How do you fuel an aircraft there and how that all works? And then what is the terminal building like? Where do you put passengers? Does everyone have to stay in the station and then just kind of wander around? Or is there like an actual troll research station terminal? Oh, of course we have a terminal building, but you would be a bit disappointed when you see it. It's, it's a container, <laughs> but it's a, it's a weather haven mech container. So we actually can expand it to about three times the size. And we've had, when we have people coming through troll that fly onto other stations, our chef normally comes out. Last time we had uh, some British scientists come through, they, they arranged tea and scones for them. And if, People are staying for a longer period of time. We can set up tents so we can bring them into station. But for this flight, we just expanded this container and people were sitting in there. We have heat in it. We actually have Wi-Fi. We didn't have for this flight because we didn't set it up, but we could connect to Wi-Fi over satellite. There is no tax-free, not yet. <laughs> but, it's uh, so far sounding like a lot of Ryanair or Allegiant Air airports and that it's just some sort of bin out in a random airport. Wow. I was hoping you'd say this is something very special, but yeah, it's probably... <laughs> we don't have a VIP lounge yet. We're not VIP people, I think, either. Not yet. But it's, it's pretty basic. <laughs> you get your own tent. Yeah. <laughs> priority boarding. Somebody must yeah. have it there. Every yeah. flight has priority boarding. Yeah, that's when I go on board. Uh, <laughs> our toilet is very basic as well it looks nice from the outside but it's two drums two empty drums we use so it's not too fancy and then so how does the fueling work oh the fueling yeah correct yeah uh, so for this last flight they didn't fuel at all and that's also a big benefit for us because fuel price in an hour case is ridiculous the price per drum per 200 liter drum of jet a1 is 1200 euros so we also look for aircraft that do not use as much fuel or as little as possible. But we have a container, a fueling container that's built to specs and we have pressure fueling like any other airport. And then we could fill this fuel container to 16,000 liters of fuel. And then we could just uh, pressure fuel any the aircraft if needed. We've had like C-130s we had down a couple of years ago and they required a lot more fuel. And then we actually had to pump from drums, but we can adjust the fueling facility to pump straight out of the drums into the aircraft. It just takes a lot longer. So in this case, the Iceland Air 767 probably didn't need all that much servicing. Was there anything that it did require down at Troll that it could not bring on for its own round trip? No, they brought everything. The crew was actually more busy taking photos out there <laughs> than, than doing anything else, So, which is normally the case as well. You no, know, it's a big thing for the crew as well to fly down. But yeah, everything was prepared well in advance, so they didn't require anything from us. I mean, that's really interesting to me that, that you, and it makes perfect sense because I was just running kind of, you said 1,200 euros for a, a 200 liter drum, which is roughly four to six times the cost of fuel that you would find 
not on Antarctica. But that leads me to my question. How do you get the fuel from – where does the fuel come from? Yeah, so we, we actually bring the fuel all the way from Denmark. We have a <laughs> – that departs Denmark and then it goes down. It normally passes through Cape Town. And we've had prior or earlier seasons we bought fuel through Cape Town. We did run into some problems with a lot of uh, contamination in the fuel which is not a good thing for aviation. So we just started buying it in drums from Denmark. And it's shipped down. It takes about a month for the ship to come down. It offloads the fuel on the coast or on the, on the ice shelf. And we bring it to station in, in tractor traverses. So long uh, trip for the fuel to get there. How long does it take to get from the ship and, and the ice shelf to the station? So normally we, we calculate about a round trip is, is a week. It's all weather dependent. Sometimes it goes a lot quicker. Sometimes it takes a bit longer. But we calculate about a week per trip. So from station down to the shelf and back. So with the summer season coming to a close and and most everyone gone, are there any changes to the airfield during the winter? Is it just kind of kept in stasis or is it kept ready to use? And, And if you're using it, how? Well, it's dark there. So how does that work? Oh, yeah. Uh, so we kind of put it to rest, but it's uh, if needed to, we have been bringing aircraft in during the winter to get people out that are sick. It would take them out about a week or two weeks, just depending on the amount of snow and the weather to get it ready. And if they need to fly in midwinter, we do have lights for the runway and, and poppies and you know set up for it. But that's not something we plan for. The weather in Antarctica during the winter is quite hostile and it is dark. So you don't want to have to use those things. No, correct. Right. But we are those it. lights are those lights wired into the ice runway, or do you bring those out as necessary since you don't use those very often? We bring them out as necessary. As I mentioned wow. before, the big problem for us with the moving runways, anything we place there, you know, we have to remount it ever so often. Also the cold climate and the UV radiation during the summer takes its toll on any equipment we leave out. I want to go back to the moving runway thing because that's just (laughs) fascinating to me. How much is it moving a year? I mean, like Jason mentioned, we've seen regular airports have to rename their runways, you know, from 27 to 28 or or something like that. But how much is the runway moving every year? And we didn't ask, does this runway have a number? Oh, yeah. Well, it does have a number. And that's another thing, actually, with runways in the polar regions. It's if you refer to north or grid north. We do have our runway, and it's uh, runway 07 or 09, and runway 25 or 27. Luckily, it's kind of moving in the same way. We get this little bend, and it's about a couple of meters per year, actually. Quite. Uh, okay. I'm sorry, did you say a couple of meters? Uh, correct. <laughs> I was thinking like a few centimeters here, a few centimeters there. A couple of meters per year. That's incredible. Yeah. It's not the normal runway, as it? Yeah. Wow. This might be an impertinent question, but do you do lavatory service? Or is that just like you bring in what you bring out? <laughs> we, we don't. We try to avoid it. Yeah. We tell them to, to take out what they, they bring in. We've had planes stay overnight. And then what they do is they empty the water prior to land. But yeah, 
We don't do any laboratory service. We haven't been asked to actually. That's probably for the better. I've noticed that the aircraft that come down generally don't stay for very long. I think the Iceland Air 767 was on the ground long enough to pilots could stretch, walk around, take some pictures, load up the cargo and your your personnel and and leave. Is that by design for the mission? Is is that to protect the aircraft from sitting overnight in in the cold weather or, or is it just kind of you know how scheduling works out it's kind of how scheduling works out we've had aircraft stay overnight we've had longer visits like vip visits we've had it stay there a couple of nights we had the norwegian king came down for a visit a couple of years ago and his plane stayed there i believe it was three nights we've had uh, 737s down there overnight as well so it's just depending on how our scheduling works and what we want to accomplish with the flight one of the questions that we got on social media was about de-icing. We answered that question via Twitter, but I, I thought we could talk about it a little bit more in, in depth here because you had mentioned that there, there's no de-icing and, and there's no de-icing fluid used, and that's for environmental reasons. But you also mentioned that you don't really need it. No, it's extremely dry down there. So we don't see that issue. I think I've seen it once, and then we used to use heaters or blowers and, and brooms. And that was on, on a flight that stayed uh, the three nights. We saw that. And they also took off during the night or in the evening to go back. But otherwise, it's, it's not an issue we see or encounter. Is there anything special that happens with the airfield once the aircraft leaves? Or is it just, okay, they're gone, everybody back to work? Well, we go through the airfield and, and check what it looks like. And we put it to rest until the next flight. But it's pretty much just go back to normal work. So when is the airfield open? Because I know we're, we always talk about the summer season, but it's not really, it's not like a full six months, six months on, six months off, is it? Is It's more kind of more condensed. Yeah, correct. So normally we, we open it in, in October, November. And then we've had flights into mid to late March. But a normal season would be between early November till right about now when we flew home. So mid to late February. And then... When does the airfield, you said it takes about two weeks to start getting the airfield prepared. Do they do anything prior to that for kind of the first first flight in the end of October, beginning of November? Does the ship go down first to make sure that there's fuel there and all of those things? Or is it just kind of, we can start bringing people in and then those people go collect everything from the ship that's come down? Yeah, correct. So our winter overs uh, that we have on station, we all train them, prepare them so they can open the airfield for us. We do flights coming in already in November and our ship comes in around Christmas and New Year's or mid-January. So our season starts, the ship comes in is probably about halfway through the season. So one of the questions that we got from social media, and, and this is something that I hadn't even considered at all, are there passport or security checks before people get on the plane? That's a great question. It is a good question. And honestly, nobody cares when you come down there because it's this wild west. But the (laughs) when you go back, so we do passport checks and we've had issues with people forgetting their passports. And it's not a much problem for us down there because we're all very friendly, but it's coming back to, to normal life, showing up in Cape Town or in Oslo without a passport. So we do passport checks prior to departing, but everybody's welcome if they come down and we don't check your passport on the way down. But most people want to stamp the passport with the station stamp, so they show it voluntarily. I think that's absolutely wild that you can just show up in Antarctica. So if I just kind of wandered over and said, hey, how you doing? It would be just like, come on in? 
Most likely, yeah. <laughs> it's it's Jason, a very let's go. Yeah, get the it's BBJ a very friendly ready. Let's head down. community down there. So I would assume that it has to be kind of that way because you only have so many people, and, and there's. I mean, just even thinking through the airfield operations, there's so much that could go wrong. And I, I guess that the the community down there kind of has to be just, yeah, we'll pitch in and do whatever needs to be done. I mean, you mentioned the electrician was operating the air traffic control tower. You had a plumber doing opera. I mean, I think that's I think I that's heard the cook mentioned a couple of times too. Yeah. yeah. The cook was in charge of the, uh, the fire truck. So... <laughs> I mean, with all of this going on, is there kind of a rotation or do you know beforehand, I've been hired because I have chef experience, I'm going to go to Erica, but also when I get there, at what point do you tell the cook that he's going to be driving a fire truck? Is there like a chore wheel that you spin (laughs) and you're like, oh, you're on air traffic control duty today? No, so we did train all the wintering staff to be able to do all different aspects of maintenance and running the runway. And then normally they come in and they say, well, I really like doing the tower or I really like doing the fire truck. We train them and they have, we rotate them through. So they've tried at least one, well, at least two or three of the different tasks that they are forced. So one thing is if there's a flight midwinter, it would be because there is an incident and one or two people would be decommissioned. So they must be able to, to handle all aspects of bringing a flight in. Yeah, I, I can see how... how- that would absolutely be necessary. During the summer, I assume there's a lot of a lot more activity than just coming down with one flight, a few flights with personnel and things like that to your station. Having one of the larger runways in Antarctica must make Troll Station a uh, kind of a, a hub for other researchers, no? It normally, yeah, we would take people from other countries coming through. This season was very different. Trying to keep COVID out of Antarctica Pretty much every country was funding for themselves this year. This year, we did not allow anybody outside uh, our program or had been through our um, quarantine and testing procedure. They were not allowed to visit station this year. But a normal season, we would have people from other stations come through. And we could also bring them in on our flights. And they would then continue uh, to their station with a smaller aircraft. So there are actually cases where there are intra-Antarctic flights taking off from Troll Research Station? Yeah, correct. So we've had that happen a couple of times that people come through and we they stay on station and then you know they fly back to Cape Town or they come in from, from Cape Town or wherever and then they would fly out to their station. Definitely the world's most out-of-the-way connecting airport, but I want to do that one day. So if a flight is coming in that isn't for your station who's in charge of the bill i mean Uh, is that kind of a the contracting station or do you is that like a cost that's built into your budget or or how's that work okay so we don't allow any aircraft to come in that's not approved for us and we only are allowed aircraft that has a you know a mission to support scientific program down there or a national sponsored Antarctic research program and then we also put a lot of demands on the operator of an aircraft coming in or on experience, what type of aircraft and things like that. We often get requests for different people to fly in or to use trawlers to go somewhere. And then that's not possible. So our funding comes from the government to run the, the airfield and it's only to allow scientific research on the continent. 
So for our scientists and for other countries' scientists that come down. What's the most common aircraft that you see during the year on, on kind of the, the intra-Antarctic flights in a normal year, obviously? The intra is the Basler. It's very common, uh, the DC-3. And the oh, two- okay. So the, the turbo converted the DC-3. Those, those have to be... I've never flown in a Basler, but I can only imagine what an upgraded DC-3 feels like. <laughs> oh, it's, it's the coolest ever. It's a really cool aircraft. And they're actually, you know, when you see them, you know, they're modernized. So they're, they look old and they feel old, but they're quite modern. So it's like being in an Indiana Jones movie flying around in it. <laughs> Another very used aircraft is the Twin Otter. Flies everywhere as well. It's pretty much just those two. Years ago, the Russians used AN-2s, which is a biplane. Oh, An wow. AN-2? All that would be amazing. That, that's yeah. insane. <laughs> that's a pretty cool aircraft. It's the only time I've been flying backwards, actually. Uh, too strong so we couldn't make it yeah what's the largest aircraft that you've seen down there oh the largest the 767 is pretty big yeah that's the largest one we've had and i think it's the largest one in our part of the continent i know the americans and the australians they use the c-17 as well but yeah the 767 is probably the largest what's the largest you could support honestly i don't know well whatever can land on three kilometers of runway i think it's a length, not a strength issue. So we did have some work study the strength of the ice, and that depends on the temperature of the ice quite a bit. So when the ice is too warm, we, we cannot take the heavy aircraft. But like now in February, and you know, if it's just cold enough, that's, the strength is very good. Uh, I know the Americans had the C-5, I believe, and that was on, during the winter, they land on, on the sea ice. I would guess we could take it as well, if we wanted to, yeah. The problem would be to refuel it. Yeah, yeah it, 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 would, it would have to bring in its own fuel. Definitely yeah. a case, probably more than anything else, of you can land down there once, but taking off is, is a whole other, right, probably right. not yeah. going to happen scenario. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm so glad that you were able to join us for this, and, and we could get a, a good look at what's happening in Antarctica. And hopefully the... Folks listening to this special episode of the podcast, go check out the Flight Radar 24 blog because we'll have a companion piece up there with a lot of photos that Sven has taken over the past few years that kind of explain a lot of the the visuals that we've talked about in this particular episode. So Sven, thank you so much for joining us today yes, to, to so talk much. about it. And thank you so much for being so gracious and sharing both your time and your photographic work so we could kind of really show people a very, very different side of aviation. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Sven Lidstrom, the operations manager at the Troll Research Station down in Antarctica for the Norwegian Polar Institute. He is now on the other side of the planet up in Tromsø, Norway, and hopefully enjoying a reacclimation to non-Antarctic life. Thank you so much again. Thanks. Thanks.